Well, let's pick up, um, if we might. I th- I'm going to start at verse 16. I, I don't. I couldn't remember exactly where I left off. Um, would that be all right if I do that? Sure. <laughs> uh, let's just let's let's kind of get our bearings here real quickly because it's been two weeks. But um, Paul and Silas, uh, his major companion, Luke joins them. They're now in Europe. They're in what was called Macedonia. And they're in the major city of Philippi. Philippi is right along a major road called the Via Ignatia, but and it's a, it was a major city. It was a it was a mini Rome because the people that lived there were exempt from taxation. Uh, the people that lived there enjoyed all the rights and privileges of Roman citizenship, and so on. And so, as far as we can determine. Um, there was no synagogue there because Paul doesn't mention that and so on. And so um, he has gone out into the community and he goes outside the gate to a river and there a group of women are praying and Lydia, I think we did talk about her last time, but Lydia, and that's just the preceding paragraph, Lydia, a very wealthy woman from the city of Thyatira, which is over in what we today would call Turkey, what was then called the Roman province of Asia, she was a seller of purple goods. Uh, she was a worshiper of the Lord, and she puts her faith in Christ. She's baptized, and her house becomes the first house church in Europe. And so uh, this is a significant lady, a very significant woman that comes to faith. And so, therefore, it's, it's intriguing to just think about this just at one level. The first woman convert in Europe, the first convert in Europe is woman. And that her house then becomes the center of, of worship in, in Philippi, the, a house church, in other words. Because remember, that's how the churches were organized. There weren't buildings uh, for churches until much later. So as, as he moves now into the second thing that happens in Philippi, this miracle and salvation of this girl gives you an indication of what paganism was like in the first century of what living in a Greco-Roman city was like in the first century. Uh, You you have a a girl, she's identified in verse 16 as a slave girl. The Greek word uh, has a a rather unique meaning to it. But she would have been someone, almost like an indentured servant kind of relationship. But she's been hired by a group of men who are exploiting her, and she is demon-possessed. And, it, and, and what she is doing, she's telling people's fortune, or tell, what we call a fortune teller, and uh, they're making a lot of money from that. So here, that's the that's basic context. As we were going to the place of prayer, now that takes you back to the previous paragraph. So they would go, they'd walk from, presumably, Lydia's house, out the gate and out toward the, the river. But before they get to that, there's a girl. We're met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination um, and brought her owners much gain by her fortune telling. Um, when it says spirit of divination, she is representing the spirit of a god. That, that god is Apollos, one of the major gods of the Greco-Roman world. So she represents his spirit, but she's telling the future. It's sometimes called soothsaying. Um, 
you can go here in Omaha. There are a number of places advertised, palm reading, those kinds of things, which will tell you your future if you pay them money. That's what she's doing. She follows Paul around, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, you read that, it's, it, it sounds like it's positive. But this, this is the demon <coughs> recognizing whom Paul and Silas represent. And so she's annoying. She's, she's, she's making noise. She's yelling this. So it's almost impossible for them to minister and, and proclaim the gospel. And it tells us in verse 18, she kept doing this for many days. So, I mean, don't think of this in a positive sense. Think of this in a negative sense. She is making it almost impossible for them to proclaim the word of God. So then Paul takes action. I love how the ESV translates this. Having become greatly annoyed, (laughs) turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour, immediate miracle. So she's demonically possessed, she's demonically empowered, demonically energized, but she's making money for those who are, uh, in effect, owning her. Now, now that, that's, that's horrible. We talk about sex trafficking today, which is not comparable to this. But the only comparable way in which you can talk about it is she is doing evil things as, with this spirit, which is a demon, and, and people are making money off of it. She isn't getting any money. Her owners are. And this would have been a pretty profitable exercise. And so now you have somebody freed. But just think about that for a minute. That means no longer will a demonic witness be present in Philippi. You have a significant cultural change in Philippi where there had been demonic power practicing and so on, now it's been cast out. And it's been replaced by a girl who now comes to faith in Christ. And her owners no longer are able to profit, and they do something which is going to cause Paul to end up in jail, which is a next paragraph. So you have two things occurring. A very wealthy woman, presumably significant person in the community, comes to faith, her house becomes the house church, and now you have a major a major manifestation of satanic power neutralized, defeated, and gone. See, when the gospel penetrates a culture, that culture changes. The way to change a culture is change people. And who does that? God does. You know, um, here we are sitting around a table here, and we're hearing this the gospel, and we believe in this word. And here's one man who makes a change in, in a community. And uh, I guess, um, how, how important is it to realize that the people that we come in contact with, we can make a difference in their life, perhaps by presenting the gospel? I think sometimes we think, I'm just one person, but here's one person. Sure. Sure. I mean, that... Uh, absolutely. I mean, what you're saying is you, you have no idea, at least I think is what you're saying, you know, have no idea how God is going to use you if you're available to be used by him, whatever the situation is. Even us. Absolutely. 
in particular you, because that's right now you're the ones who are hearing the word of God and what do you do with it? It's just Erwin McManus in one of his books talks about those divine appointments in life. And that's meaning God, God has the right to send across your path someone that you may be able to share the gospel with, or even just the way you're living your life or whatever, you make an impact on them. So absolutely, even you and me can have that opportunity to make an impact. Now this explains, though, what the next paragraph is all about, where Paul's arrested. Now there are a lot of details about this. It really goes on through uh, the next section to almost the end of the chapter. But because there's a lot I want to talk about here, but we want to explain, first of all, how does Paul end up in prison? When her owner, I'm in verse 19, when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they're profiting from this girl, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, let me stop there for just a minute. I don't have a map. I have one, but it's, it's on PowerPoint. We can't use that. But if you had just, we, we found all the ruins of Philippi had been uncovered. We know exactly where the marketplace was. The Agora was an open marketplace. And, I mean, you, in, in these Greco-Roman cities, it was pretty sizable uh, because it's where all the major shops were, and, and it's usually were on the edge where some of the temples were. And on the, usually, not always, it was usually on the south side of the Agora is where the magistrates would sit. They would sit on something called the Bema seat. It was literally a seat along the wall. And if any disputes, any legal issues, any, um, any property boundary disputes, all of those kinds of things, the magistrates would settle. And so you would go into the marketplace, the, the issue would be presented to them, the evidence would be presented, then they'd make a judgment. So if you've understood everything I just said in the last three sentences, that's what these guys are doing. They bring Paul and Silas to the magistrate, and they're going to file two charges against them. And the expectation is that these magistrates are going to say, uh, our ruling is you're guilty, and you're thrown in prison. Incidentally, the term ma- that's translated magistrates there in verse 20, the Greek word is strategoi. What English word do we get from that? Strategy. So, I mean, you can see a lot of these loan words that come into English uh, as an illustration. Here are the charges. These men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. Charge number one. They're creating chaos and disturbance in our city. Number two, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So what does that mean? Well, Rome, the Roman Empire, uh, it was in effect like a list, but the Roman Empire had had an approved list of accepted religious organizations. And of course, any worship of any one of their gods is acceptable, or certain cults coming out of the East were accepted. The cult of Mithra was one of them. But this, Christianity, is not legitimized in the Roman Empire. And so they're trying to make this charge. They're preaching something outside of what the Roman Empire has approved. They're a cult. They're an unlawful, non-legitimate cult. 
So two charges. They're creating disorder <coughs> and chaos in the city, and they're representing something that Rome doesn't approve of. And he added, they added something else. Did you catch it? They're Jews. Now, the reason that might be important is, as far as we can determine, there was no significant Jewish population in Philippi. So this would be sort of an incendiary, do you know what I mean by that? An incendiary charge, stirring up a lot of ethnic hatred. Because they didn't, you know, Jews were accepted in some areas, and some areas were not accepted. So they're really, they're really leveling some loaded charges about Paul and Silas. It goes on in verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them. And so, and, and that doesn't mean physically attacking. That means they're supporting what these, these, these owners of this slave girl were saying. And the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Now, since the board is up here, and we certainly don't, oh, the only oh, problem is this. I was really hoping you weren't going to use that because I could not find the marker. Okay. Well, then... I think I can draw this. Can you see this? This is called a fasces. It's a number of rods tied together with an axe head on top. Called a fasces. F-A-C-F-A-S-C-E-S. This is what the magistrates did. You see, the magistrates would have had one or two Roman soldiers that would carry this. And when it is, it's happening here, when somebody in the Agora is charged with a crime, they would unwrap this and beat them with these rods. Okay, by the way, if you really like words, fasces is the root of an ideology of the 20th century. What was it called? Fascism. Fascism. So, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, I like history, so to make those connections. So, I mean, they're, they're doing something which is not abnormal, except there's one issue. Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. And Paul and Silas have been denied due process rights as Roman citizens. That's going to come up in just a minute. But so what you see is you see it's almost a, a popular, energized movement to get rid of Paul and Silas, led by the owners of this slave girl. And they bring them to, this is a normal, very typical thing to do, to the Agora, before the strategoi, the, the magistrates. And the magistrates, yeah, okay, they threw them into prison. So there's no due process rights, there's no trial, there's no presentation of evidence. See, that's Rome, and this is hard for us sometimes to even remember this, but Rome brought order to the Mediterranean world. And one of the things it brought to the Mediterranean world was the law, rule of law. And they had law books that everybody was supposed to follow. But there was a difference between how a Roman citizen was treated and how a non-Roman citizen was treated. So they are assuming that Paul and Silas are not Roman citizens. How would you prove that you are? You had a little, a little thing you usually wore it around your waist. There's a little kind of an insignia. 
It was made of wood, but it would show that you were a Roman citizen. Why Paul and Silas didn't have it, we don't know. What's Woody Wonder Woman here for? Woody, it's all right. Looking for a marker. Don't, it's all right. Don't worry about it. He's got one. Verse. You know what? May your children and grandchildren rise up and call you blessed. <laughs> so, uh, for those of you who couldn't see my pen, I'll draw this again. This is an axe head. And these were bound together with little laces. This is called a fasces. And that's what the magistrates were using here. It's an axe, fasces. And so, and by the way, the axe head, because Roman citizens, your form of execution was decapitation. And so, I mean, this is really a symbol of Roman power. These were everywhere. And by the way, if you go to the House of Representatives, the United States Congress, there's an image of this <laughs> on the wall, because uh, this is a symbol of the Roman Republic. And they are, are, when our founding fathers put a lot of the symbols together, our buildings, you know, you think of, of the Capitol, you think of the Supreme Court building, they're modeled after Greco-Roman buildings. Supreme Court building is, is modeled after the Parthenon in Athens. And so a lot of Roman Greek symbols in a lot of our stuff tied to the Athenian democracy and the Roman Republic. And that's one of them, to see in the House of Representatives. I'm telling you far more than you want to know. Oh, but what is I, the relationship between the two, this, this tool and fascism and fascist? Okay, what now. Is the, what is the relationship or the, the common thing between this and being a fascist? Uh, very little. <laughs> I mean, fa um, fascism is really uh, a very hard, a very hard ideology to define. To be honest with you, the epitome of fascism is, of course, Benito Mussolini. He used that word, and uh, he is, uh, he was consciously saying, "I want to restore the glory of the Roman Empire in Italy, and I'm going to restore its power. I'm going to restore its glory." And so he borrowed a lot of these things in his black shirts that were like thugs in Italy. Uh, they used that kind of state power, ruthless, ruthless, horrible state power, to facilitate his very nefarious ends. And, and so in terms of that and modern, uh, 20th century fascism, other than the name, there's not much else you can say. It's just a symbol. Moving on then... Um, and when they, verse 23, inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison. That would be the lower part of the prison where all the rats on the, on the dirt and cockroaches and all that would be. The smell of feces and urine would be almost unbearable. And then he put their feet in stocks. Now, I, again, I don't have pictures of that. I have some drawings that I use when I use PowerPoint. But these stocks, if you've ever been to New England or back in the colonial period or in England in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, wooden stocks were a very common thing to see. Terribly uncomfortable and very painful. They had been beaten with rods. Now they're lying flat on the floor and their arms are now 
tied with chains to the wall. So I mean, just try to envision that. Your, your, your feet are in wooden stocks. Your arms are tied to chains on the wall. And now you're in prison. A damp, dirt, rat-infested, the smell would be almost unbearable. That's where they are. Got it? Yeah. Now look at the next verse. About midnight, Paul and Silas were screaming and complaining and cursing God. I find this one of the most extraordinary verses in the Bible. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. If you remember what I just described to you, what this was like for these men. I'm going to tell you something very transparently. I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could be lying flat with my feet in wood stocks, my arms chained to a wall in the very basement of a facility. It's dirt with rats. I'm not sure I would be singing and praying to the Lord. Maybe you guys would. Maybe you, yes, I definitely would do that. Now, you, you granted, all that Paul had been through up to that point, remember up in Lystra and the first missionary journey, he had been stoned. So, I mean, he's been through a lot of persecution. He knew that he was going to suffer to stand for the Lord. So there's a whole context of this. But that, that, is, that is astonishing. Joy in the mid of egregious suffering. Doesn't this point out there's a difference between our physical being and our spiritual being and and because we've heard stories similar people Absolutely. you know being put at the stake and Absolutely. You know, as you mentioned earlier a couple of years mm-hmm. ago maybe and they would be torches along mm-hmm. the way but mm-hmm. some would be mm-hmm. singing as they were burning that's right. I mean, it's just uh, it's just a remarkable testimony because that is not a natural way for somebody to respond. It's supernatural. And then Luke, who wrote this, Luke adds, and the prisoners were listening to them. So that's a testimony. That's a witness in the midst of a, a, a very degrading, ugly situation. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open. Everyone's bonds were unfashioned. The, the leg um, uh, stocks and the, the chains that, that chained them to the wall. So now they're free. <clears throat> Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, the way Rome set this up, is that a, a jail was to be administered by military officers, more than one, but this officer, he's the jailer. And if anybody escapes, you're paying for this with your life. So what he's going to do is he's going to fall on his sword. So what you see here then is, this is amazing to me. I mean, just it's amazing to me. But Paul cried out, don't harm yourself, we're here. Would you stay there? Come on, be honest. Nobody's pretending no. like you don't. I mean, they, they stay there. Don't harm yourself. And the jailer called for lights and rushed, because it would be dark, 
rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, what we are not sure about here, because there's nothing in the language of Greek, what must I do to be saved? Here is a jailer who's a Greco-Roman person, thinking like a Greco-Roman person. There's only one explanation for what just happened. A supernatural explanation, right? There's no other explanation for this. And so this man, this jailer, this Greco-Roman person, steeped in Greco-Roman way of thinking, is saying, what must I do to be saved? Does he mean saved from his sin? See, what does he mean by that? We just don't know. Luke does not explain this to us. But Paul answers, almost in this way, whatever you mean by your question, here's the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. So, possibly an ambiguous question, although I'm not sure it is, but the answer is not ambiguous. It's definitive. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And that's a very important connection here. Because they're explaining to him what they mean, who's the Lord Jesus, what did he do, what do you have to do, and to all who are in his household. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and was baptized, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. That's a, remar- that's a remarkable, almost astounding transformation. Enemy is now a friend. An opponent who seeks your death is now washing your wounds and giving you food. Enemies are now in the family of God and enjoying all the blessings and all the benefits. So, I mean, you, you have, and I think this is one of the points, you have an astonishing transformation of three people a wealthy woman, a demon-possessed girl, and a Greco-Roman jailer. Do you think the culture of Philippi has changed? Absolutely. Transformation of a culture starts with transformation of people. And that's why I I love this passage of Scripture. And we're not done with it because we have, to, we have to see what Paul does next with the magistrates. But any questions or comments, anything you want me to clarify? I see very interesting that Paul saw that the jailer is about to kill himself, but right. the jailer needed lights to see. So it's very interesting. I don't think that's been put there for a reason. Make sense? Absolutely. At one level, because it is dark, pitch dark in these prisons, there is no source of light, uh, his assumption was first that they had escaped, but they hadn't. He hears them talking. So now the light, and it is, the metaphor there is light replaces darkness. His whole life had been in darkness now. He sees, he understands. That's, that's good. There's, a, I think, a, a metaphorical play going on there. I want you to read this with excitement. This is an exciting passage. This is transformation of people's lives. 
I can just believe this like it's written, but um, <clears throat> I'm having a little bit of problem. And uh, it said, uh, and you will be saved. Oh, believe in the Jesus, in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved in your and your household. But the household's not there in the jail. Does that mean that he would be able to share with them until they believe? Uh, that's correct. That's correct. And that's exactly what, what he does. He, meaning the, the jailer, next verse, verse 33, he takes them to uh, his house. It's his household. And and, and they, they believe. So, you know, I... I I don't know exactly how we should understand the statement that Luke says in your household. Because Luke is the historian. He's recording what happens. He knows what's going to occur, that they're going to go to his household, and, and um, presumably his wife. So we don't know. The household is oikia is the Greek word there, which could mean also the servants of his house. But, I mean, I, I, I don't know how else to understand. It's very short. Bang, 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 it's over. But, uh, again, um, it's just that everyone, everyone is influenced now by the transformation of this jailer, including his family. And they come to faith. Um, I believe every word that's written in. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think. I well, don't know if I need to know all the details. Yeah. But I sometimes... But, well, one of the applicational points of something like this, Woody, is... Now, this is a father, but it could be a mother. But when a father comes to Jesus Christ and is so transformed by the gospel, that will affect the rest of the family. And there have been so, so many illustrations from history, um, recent history even, but of, of the impact that the, the, the transformation of a dad and husband coming to Christ, how that will impact the rest of the family. Because all of a sudden, he's a new creation in Christ. And so, so often I used to see this with students at, at our school there for a long time. We would have in every entering class three or four um, these would be the young undergraduates just getting started with their college career, that are the first people to trust Christ in several generations in their family. In other words, they, their parents are not Christians, as far as their brothers and sisters, and they've come to the Lord for whatever the circumstances might be. And I used to always try to single them out and talk with them, that you are breaking the cycle in your family, presumably going back several generations there would have been Christians, people that knew the Lord and loved the Lord. But for whatever and however that occurs, that's why one person in a family coming to Christ can dramatically impact the rest of the family. It doesn't always happen, but it often happens that way. And that's one of the themes that you see in the book of Acts. It, it mentions that in a number of instances, a whole household comes to faith in Christ because one person does. And that's that. that absolutely. 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 That's one of the exciting things of transformation. All so many people are affected over time when someone comes to the Lord. You know, um, 
as, as men, we may not be able to quote certain scriptures that our wives can quote, but still we remain the spiritual leader. Yes, absolutely. In our family. Absolutely. And so we don't take a backseat. That's kind of man's evaluation, but it's not God's evaluation. That's right. He looks at our heart. And if, if we as men and husbands, fathers, grandfathers, provide that kind of leadership, I think it seems what, what you're saying, it can influence absolutely. the family and, and generations oh. thereafter. Oh, oh yeah. I could tell you, but I'm not going to do that. So many stories of individuals that when they break that cycle, the impact that has in generations to come. Jonathan Edwards is my favorite example. I mean, but we won't say that. we got something else to do, and let's look at verse 35. This is a very interesting section. And when we're done with it, I want to ask you, why does Paul do this? Why does he insist on this? But let's read the, 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 the narrative here. Uh, verse 35, but when it was day, remember this all had occurred during the night, the magistrates sent the police. Now, that the ESV has translated that word police. These are the people who carried the fasces. That they, these are the people who did. These are the ones who administered the beating or, in, in some cases, it was a capital offense, the decapitation. These are the enforcers do you know what I mean by that? The enforcers of what the strategoi would decide. So the ESV chooses to call them the police. But I mean, so I don't want you to think of a guy with a with black shirt and a hat on and carrying a belly cut. It's not that. They're the enforcers of what the magistrates decide. So they sent them and said, let these men go, meaning Paul and Silas. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. Paul said, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens. Now you see, the magistrates, these strategoi, have made an egregious, serious error. They have not allowed Paul and Silas to have due process rights before they're beaten. That they were beaten... That is part of what the Fasces soldiers carried with them. That would be the punishment. But the issue is they were not given those due process rights of a hearing, evidence, witnesses, and thrown us into prison. And do not now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Meaning, take us out of the prison. We want the strategy to come to the prison and take us out of the prison personally. That's kind of an audacious demand, isn't it? He's holding What? He's holding That's right. Verse 38, the police reported these words of the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Listen, it's so hard for us to understand this, the importance of rule of law that Rome brought to the world. And rule of law involved due process procedures. This is all we found, these are just loads of these in archaeological digs, these codified standards, you codified, you know what I mean? Codified standards that, that Roman officials were to follow. 
And if they didn't follow them, they were accountable to the Caesar. And in some cases, could even be executed. I mean, that, that, that's one of the gifts of the brutal Roman Empire. One of the gifts to the world is rule of law. And I mean, some of their laws were horrible, but it's rule of law. Standardized, that's what Rome did, standardized everything. Their architectural plans for the city were identical everywhere. I've been to many of the ruins of Roman cities all over the world. They're all laid out exactly the same. That's how Rome did it. And so even in law, so these guys are terrified because they haven't followed codified law here. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now let's think about this for just a little bit. Why did Paul do this? Why is he demanding that they be accountable for their action? Well, I, I think that they have they've had to admit it that, that, that they were wrong. You know, that's exactly what happened. And so what they were, many people see seen Paul being beaten and, and, and locked up and, and all that. And so they needed to make that public for him to come out so everybody else could see that they were being released and and and, and the, the ones that beat him were wrong. That's right. That's right. Because Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. Remember, this was a mini Rome. This this was a city that was privileged. They were exempt from certain taxations. Uh, a lot of Roman military officers had retired here. That was one of the reasons why Philippi became an important city at this point. And so there's a lot at stake here. These are all people that knew, Greco knew Roman law, and if they follow the strategy, they're not following it. That's going to indict them. Do you think there might be another reason as well? Well, they wanted to leave with dignity rather than be tossed out of the city. Well, yeah, perhaps that's true. That's true. Does Paul, does Paul have in mind... Coming back and to be minister to, to the city again in a in, in, in more dignified way and respectful way and accepted way. Yes, he probably envisioned he will to visit it again. He will do that in his third missionary journey. And how about for the sake of other Christians? Yes. Listen. And this is really this is really an important principle that you kind of see, and we're going to see it coming up later in Paul's ministry near the end of the book of Acts when he's in Caesarea. If you have certain citizenship rights, leverage those to advance the gospel. You're not doing anything illegal. You're not doing anything. Um, uh, duplicitous here or deceitful. You're, you're using what is a standard way and standard practice of due process to the advantage of the gospel. And Paul wants to make sure that the strategoi don't do this to any of the recent Christians in Philippi. You can't treat Christians who are Roman citizens in a way you treated us. 
And so it's 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 just an, it, Paul, I, and we don't know because the, the text doesn't tell us. But Paul is doing something that he has every right to do. He's a Roman citizen, and codified Roman law stipulated the due process rights. If I say that phrase, you know what I mean, due process right? That's everybody pretty much knows that. The due process rights that a citizen enjoyed. And so Paul is saying, you did not treat us right. I demand an apology from you. I demand that you treat us the way Roman citizens should be treated. And they go along with it. And so he's setting a standard, too, because remember, the rest of the city knows these guys are Roman citizens now, and a lot of Roman people are there. So it was their line, their their position, each category's position, was on the line. And Paul takes advantage of that. Jim, would this have been recorded or along with, you said it has a, the Romans had a, a book of rules of law. Kind of funny. Uh, would that have been uh, added somewhere along the line, uh, do you think? Or was this just so, this happenstance that, that perhaps this event would not have been recorded? So, in clarification of the Roman law, or you will, that a Roman citizen could become a Christian. That, that well, I, I was I was that. thinking more if a Roman citizen uh, is this way, and they are talking about a particular uh, uh, faith or living a particular faith, you just couldn't come in and beat them up and throw them. In. No, that's right. That's right. No, that's absolutely correct. Uh, and and that. The, the, the origin of, of Roman law and the idea of rule of law is really rooted in the Republic. Before it becomes an empire, it's the Roman Republic. And the, the Roman Republic began that process, and it was in the Senate, uh, where they began to codify the laws, uh, codify and organize them and putting them into, into itemized references, that are then, and as the empire is built, that applies to all Roman citizens in the empire. Now, a lot of these areas where they conquer are conquered provinces. Judea was one of those. Th those people are not, they're not guaranteed due process rights because they're not Roman citizens. So, I mean, there, there's very, very definitely a divided society. There's Roman citizens who enjoy all the rights and privileges, etc., and there's everybody else. And everybody else serves these people in the empire, particularly. But still, despite that very gross inequality in how people were treated, that there is rule of law is a principle of civilization. The United States is built on that. We're built on rule of law. Law means something, and it is to, uh, and, and that's how our, you know, the 14th Amendment makes it very clear because the Constitution doesn't define citizenship. That's an amazing thing. The founders never defined citizenship. It's, it takes the 14th Amendment till they define citizenship. But nonetheless, my point is that citizens of the United States, it's the same idea that was birthed in Rome. Citizens have due process rights. And, the, and that's, it's advantageous, therefore, to become a citizen <laughs> because you are guaranteed all those rights. And, of course, for us as Americans, they're itemized among many other places. They're itemized in the Bill of Rights. First Ten Amendments to the Constitution, which are precious rights for us. I mean, they really are. Well, we're way off, and no, we're not. But I mean, I, I did. It's it's interesting to just think and try to speculate. Why did Paul push this so much? 
Because he could have easily said, thanks, we're leaving. They said, no. I want them to come down and escort us out of the prison. <laughs> the, the first thing I thought of was credibility. And so I kind of just decided to look up credibility here. And it says um, the quality good. of being trusted and believed in. That's good. Yeah, and absolutely. That's, kind of I that, I, I, that, that's appropriate. It fits. It really does. And it's just, it, it, it's, it's helps me to think that if we have the opportunity to uh, use whatever position we're in for the advance of the gospel. And that's really what Paul's doing here for uh, a, a lot of reasons. All right. Now we're about to move into my favorite chapter in the book of Acts. Acts 17, because Paul's going to end up in Athens, the great intellectual center of the Greco-Roman world. We won't get to that today because we only have a few minutes left. So let's just continue. Now, if you're if you're using the map that I gave you in the packet on page 7, uh, or well, there's maybe one or two others, you can find two of, of Greece. But now we pass through Amphipolis, um, Amphipolis, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. You remember a couple years ago we studied First and Second Thessalonians? Please somebody tell me yeah, that you remember. Yeah, yeah. We, okay, good, good. Remember we studied that. <coughs> this is the city to whom he wrote First and Second Thessalonians. <coughs> and so oh, Thessalonica, here, if you look on the map, you can see it. But here's Philippi, and down here's Thessalonica. It's still on that road, the Ignatia Way. It's still on that same road. But it's a major, major city, much larger than Philippi. It was the capital of the district. It was a senatorial province. Population was over 30,000. This is a pretty good-sized city in Macedonia. And Luke tells us there was a synagogue of the Jews. As Paul went in, verse 2, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. So how long was Paul in Thessalonica? Three weeks. At least up to this point. Yeah, right. He, what did he do there? He goes into the synagogue. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. What would the scriptures be that he used? The Old Testament. He goes on, verse 3. Luke explains. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ. What's another word for the Christ? Messiah. The Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, let me stop there for a minute. Now, you got to remember, he's not talking to Greco-Roman people here. He's talking to Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica. So, would there have been scriptures in the synagogue for him to use? Sure. Yes. That's where the scriptures were kept. Because the typical person, they, they were expensive because everything was handwritten, hand-copied, I mean. So anyway, so everything's there. So he just, and what do you think? Explaining and proving it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. What passages might he have looked at? Pretty sure he went to Isaiah 53, mm-hmm. which speaks of the suffering servant who's going to die a substitutionary death. I'm pretty sure he went to Psalm 16 and Psalm 22, which talks about the resurrection. So the kinds of texts that you've seen quoted so far in our study of Acts, that's what he would have done. He would say, here's what the text says. 
Here's what Jesus did. You draw the conclusion. He is the Messiah. And so, I mean, it's, it, 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 he adds, and to rise from the dead. This Jesus, I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Again, you wouldn't say that to a Greco-Roman person in A.D. 51, which is about when this is. They wouldn't have anyone knowing what you're talking about. But to Jews, this is a profound message. The Messiah has come. And Jesus is the Messiah. Because everything the Old Testament said he would do, he did. You draw the conclusion. Verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number of devout Greeks. These would be non-Jewish people who were in the synagogues. And then he adds, and then a few leading women. Luke is out of his way in the book of Acts to demonstrate to us that women are responding to the gospel. Which is, you know, for you and me, you say, oh, yeah, that's good. In the first century, I mean, this is, uh, who cares? That's really important because Galatians 3.28, in Christ, there's neither Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. Everybody's one in Christ. And so Luke is going out of his way to show this is also impacting women. I want you to just notice something. There are a series of verbs there that I just want you to notice. Verse 3, explain, prove. Verse 4, persuaded and joined. Paul was ready to explain the truth, to show the proof for the truth that led to people being persuaded that it was true and then joining becoming a Christian. Those four verbs are pretty important. Peter says in, in, in his epistle, always be ready to give a defense of what you believe. Glenn. It's a question with the women. Um, culturally, did he minister directly to the women? Or was this another fallout of persuading the men and the men went back to the family and they brought the women? That's a great question, and I, I, don't, I don't know if I can answer that specifically. We know from when he was in Philippi, they intentionally went to a group of women praying along the Gantetage River there right outside of Philippi. Uh, we don't have anything that Luke is saying here where Paul is intentionally going. He, I don't know why maybe he wouldn't, but uh, you know, Jewish society, as was Romans, are very patriarchal. So as men come to faith, so do many women. But we're in Philippi, it was Gentile. That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. So, I mean, it's just that he is going out of his way to indicate, and these leading women, the, 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 the uh, participle there that's modifying women, um, leading means they are either wives of very influential men, or they themselves, like Lydia was, are wealthy or positions of influence or whatever. We don't know. I mean, it's just these are important women in the city of Thessalonica. 
Oh, Jim. So you think as they were talking to the, here and other places too that he, he uses the Isaiah 53 and, and then Psalm 16 and 22? Yeah, among others, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're definitely, they would be the major texts. If he's going to be talking about that Messiah has to suffer and be, and be risen from the dead, they're, mm -hmm. the, they're the, some of the main texts that absolutely he would have cited. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, uh, they're ones today that in Jewish evangelism, like uh, Messianic Jews or Jews for Jesus or those different groups, they're the ones they have right on cards, ready to talk about, mm. ready to share with. Because, I mean, if you know the Old Testament, which presumably most Jewish people are familiar with it, they are texts they'd be familiar with. Mm. And that just, look, this is what happened to Jesus. This is what the text says. What conclusion can you draw there? Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's quite magnificent. Mm. <clears throat> now, uh, let me two minutes. I'm going to do one more thing. But the Jews were jealous. Now, uh, Luke does the same thing John does in his gospel. When you see the phrase "the Jews," that doesn't mean every single Jew in Thessalonica. It's usually a reference to the leaders, like the synagogue leaders in Thessalonica. They were jealous. What are they jealous of? Yeah, they're stealing their thunder. As these people, and Jewish people, are coming to Christ, these synagogue leaders are going to lose their influence and their power. And they're saying, I don't care what you guys are preaching. I don't want my people to follow you. So what they did is they organized, Luke puts it this way, a wicked men of the rabble that formed a mob set the city in uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out to the crowd. The Greek word for crowd there is demos. D-E-M-O-S. Demons. No. No N. D-E-M-O-S. Demos. What word will come from that? Well, uh, or democracy. <laughs> Rule of the people. Demos means people or crowd. I'm telling you more than you need to know. So you have an uproar, you have a mob, you have chaos in the city that these Jewish synagogue leaders have stirred up. If you want to know what happens, come back January the 9th. All right? And I, I love to end this with a measure of excitement. Well, you can't wait to find out. You'll probably forget it by tomorrow. But anyway, we'll talk. It's, it's exciting what happens, how this develops. So I'm going to pray. Let us pray for you, uh, Jim. Father, we give thanks for your presence in our lives. We give thanks for the ability to meet like this, mm -hmm. to be led by someone who is knowledgeable in your word, mm -hmm. and someone whose family allows him to mm -hmm. continue in his teaching. Amen. Mm -hmm. All of this is to your glory, and we give thanks. Amen. Amen.